if you want to push forward performance within the organization, another thing that you're going to have in addition to buy-in from management are tooling to enable the organization to actually measure performance, both as it currently is and, you know, as it progresses, and also education how to teach people about what performance actually means and the various aspects that have to do with performance. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool, the low-code platform for developers to build internal tools. Some of the best teams out there trust Retool. Rex, Coinbase, Plaid, DoorDash, Legal Genius, Amazon, Allbirds, Peloton, and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as a platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Subscribe to our channel at youtube.com slash changelog to be notified of when we go live. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping JS Party super fast all around the world. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, let's do this. It's party time, y'all. love your intro music. Yeah. Well, you know, I love that you just, you were the first person to talk on this podcast. That's great. <laughs> I was going to be like, hi, party people, blah, 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 blah. Dan is awesome. Yay. This is going to be an awesome show. <laughs> all the like same like stuff I do all the time, you know, because I'm always really excited about our incredible guests and panelists. But yes, we have awesome party intro music. And uh, for a party themed podcast, I think, you know, fairly on brand for the most part. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's 80s music and I'm an 80s person, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was born in the 80s <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> but I won't say how old I was in the 80s. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> hey, and like age is currency in these in my world, but um <laughs> but anyways, so hi party people. Welcome. Welcome. We're very excited to have a very very special guest today. Dan Shapir, which we'll pass over the mic to in just a second. With me today is Nick Nisi. Hello. Welcome, Nick. Ahoy, hoy. I sound a little different. It's because I have my first cold in two years now that the weather is 80 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not COVID. No, it's not. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, and so Dan, welcome, Dan. We're very excited to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. And so Dan is kind of this really, I would say, a wealth of information. A font. Yes. I'm a font of information. (laughs) All of the above. Um, Yeah. So Dan is kind of... um, been writing software for a really long time. And he's one of those rare engineers that has managed to, I think, persist over time. Like it's very hard, I think, to stay up to date with engineering trends over just even the course of five years, let alone the course of a decade, let alone the course of two decades. Right. So I think you're in this interesting group of people that like has been writing software for a long time and you're able to kind of bring that relevancy of how you write software into into what you do on a day-to-day basis, like with your current job. And I think that's what makes you super awesome. So thank you very much. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. (laughs) 
Right. So Dan is a performance tech lead at Insurance Next and Next Insurance. Next, Next Insurance. insurance. <laughs> yeah. We're an insurance company. I kid that I'm now an insurance agent. No, but seriously. <laughs> I, yeah, we are one of those uh, insure tech unicorns. That's what we are. Yeah, that's super cool. And previous to that, you spent seven years and change kind of at Wix and leading up the performance efforts there, mm-hmm. which is really cool because Wix is kind of downstream to like millions and millions of websites. Exactly. Think like, hey, how do I, it's not just like, how do I make my website go faster? Like making my website go faster also then makes like, or making my infrastructure go faster enables all these other like websites to go faster, right? So it's just, it's this very interesting ripple. My favorite catchphrase in that context was that, you know, I, on a good day, I would come home and tell my wife that today I made 150 million websites load and execute faster. And she wouldn't care at all because she's really not into tech. So it doesn't mean anything to her. But yeah, one of the great things that I had about working at Wix was the scale. The scale of the, the number of websites hosted on the, on the Wix platform and also the growth. So there was a lot of scale in a lot of ways. Uh, and yeah, it was a very interesting time. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's really fascinating. I mean, so Wix is like, I think like kind of being downstream from that many kind of users is just, just always an incredible platformy challenge, right? Because you kind of have to build extensively and and kind of roll out changes gradually. And there's kind of a lot of considerations to take into account. Like, Actually, I would have to say that uh, one of the great things about Wix, by the way, it's important to say, now that I'm no longer at Wix, I'm not representing Wix in any sort of a way. This is just my opinions, also not the opinions of my current employer, Next Insurance. And obviously, the longer, the, the more time passes, the more out of date I will be about what's going on there. Mm-hmm. But one of the really interesting things about Wix was the amazing rate of change that uh, they maintain. They do... Uh, Something like a system is updated like every two minutes. The software changes at an amazing pace. There are thousands of ongoing A-B tests and experiments. So the rate of change is amazing there. Even though, like you said, they are downstream of so many websites that depend on them for their uptime and stuff like that. Right, right, right. So you clearly like developed a lot of expertise in with Perf. And there's a really great article that you wrote recently um, on Smashing Magazine around kind of a case study for Perf that you, you know, a bunch of Perf improvements. Sort of my parting gift to Wix was writing an article about a case study, how we improve performance at Wix, because the performance was actually quite radical. When I joined Wix, even though it was a long time ago, like you said, but you know, even later than that, since, let's say, the beginning or the middle of 2020 to today, Wix performance has improved to something like eightfold. So that are pretty astounding numbers, if you think about it. And if I mm-hmm. go back before then, it's more than an order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. And that's despite the fact that the websites that you can build on the Wix platform have become significantly more sophisticated and complex and feature-rich. So it's not just improving the performance of what you currently have, it's improving performance even though you're providing a lot more features and functionality. Mm-hmm. So just to give some context there, I haven't used Wix too much, but I think I know a little bit about it. Like, it's Is it a low or no-code 
solution for creating websites? It's both. Uh, so okay. originally Wix was no code. Okay. What's known as a drag and drop for website builder, also a CMS because you can also put data in there and use it to populate uh, the dynamic parts of, of your website. So it's both a website builder and a CMS. They've kind of expanded their offering these days to also uh, be a low-code type solution where you can augment what you build using drag and drop with hmm. code that you can actually write into or inject, as it were, into the websites that you build. They have this technology called Velo and uh, literally an online uh, um, a web-based development environment that you can actually like write JavaScript code directly in the context of the Wix editor. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if you want to associate some custom operation with one that isn't provided out of the box, with some of the, you know, with one of the visual widgets that you can drag onto the canvas, you can do that with that tooling as well. So, they are both a no-code type solution for people who prefer not to code, which is the vast majority, but also a low-code if you need enhanced functionality. Gotcha. So presumably when you're talking about improving performance across millions of websites, is it the performance of the, the generated code as opposed to like the performance of the, the builder that, that generates the code? Oh, yeah. My focus while I was at Wix was primarily on the websites that were built on that platform. Gotcha. Obviously, you also want to improve the performance of Wix's own tooling. And by the way, mm -hmm. more and more of Wix's own tooling is being built on top of Wix's own platform. Nice. So obviously starting from the Wix homepage itself or the Wix's own blog, they're built on the Wix platform. But now a lot of the Wix's own, let's call it back office, is actually built on top of Wix because as Wix itself evolves and gains more capabilities and functionality, and like I said, even the ability to put your custom code in there, you know, why not? Mm -hmm. Ultimate dog fooding. Everybody should eat their own dog food. Let's put it this way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about Wix is that there's, you're enabling the guardrails for people to build performant websites, right? So there's like all these decisions that are kind of abstracted away from users that are really just trying to get stuff done, right? They're just trying to make something happen. And so there's no kind of deep knowledge required for them to like, how to like build a responsive website, how to like make a website performant, how to like, you know, get this thing working and rendered quickly across the globe, right? Like there's all these things that they don't have to think about, which is kind of nice, but like you're kind of taking on that responsibility on the engineering side to like make sure that those decisions are in place with the framework. You're absolutely correct, but that's kind of like just the edge of this general trend mm. that we're seeing across the entire industry. I mean, even if you look at like web application builders or frameworks mm -hmm. like uh, Next.js or, or mm -hmm. Nuxt or Gatsby or SvelteKit, they are also kind of providing you with boxed solutions, like you said, guardrails or happy paths or opinions, if they are opinionated about how to build your web application or your website. And you're giving away some control, but in a lot of a lot of cases, you're gaining a lot of of advantages because they they are kind of pointing you 
towards the proper direction and you benefit from the economies of scale. You benefit mm-hmm. from the fact that a lot of these companies can afford to hire and, and employ the best and, you know, most expensive engineers. Mm-hmm. So definitely. Now, obviously, you know, a tool like Wix provide a much more, let's say, guardrails than a tool like a Next.js. You don't, you mm-hmm. usually don't <laughs> write your code. But if you think about like Next.js, why does Next.js exist? Well, because doing manual SSR in React is hard and a lot of people don't do it correctly. So you've got Next.js kind of doing it for you. And you've got Vercel automating your integration with the CDNs because it's, it's challenging to do that correctly. So it's not just about Wix. It's true about every website builder. It's true about the Shopify. And it's true about, think about it, it's even true about like Amazon or Google with their cloud services that they provide you with. So that's kind of the direction that we're heading in, I think. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. I think for me, what's interesting about Wix is it's very democratizing. That's the aspect of it that I really like, which is it pushes kind of good standards across like responsiveness, accessibility, performance. It pushes all of those things broadly and it makes them accessible to, to just anyone, anyone really, right? Like on the open web, most, most importantly, like these aren't like behind a gate or it's not like walled gardens of Instagram or whatever, right? Like this is like, or Facebook pages, <laughs> like this is like on the public web, can be SEO'd. It's very exciting. Yeah, I totally agree. It's both a good thing and for some people, I guess, less so. Mm-hmm. So if I look at the, the good aspects of it, so for example, you mentioned accessibility. Wix is put, uh, putting a lot of effort into improving accessibility both out of the box and also in terms of tooling. So again, when like as same with performance, when Wix does something that improves accessibility, you've automatically improved accessibility for hundreds of millions of websites. Right. And that's definitely a good thing. On the other hand, there are certain people that also look at something like a Wix or Shopify or Squarespace as a threat because some web developers basically are saying, hey, you know, a product like Wix is (laughs) taking away some of our livelihood. So it kind of works both ways, I guess. But, you know, (laughs) that's progress for you. Yeah, I was actually going to segue into that because I think there's like, yeah, there's probably a lot of trepidation among developers. And I think my kind of answer to that is like, Wix is helping solve problems that are solved. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to move on as a community to solve more complex problems. There's Wix is kind of like improving the baseline of of the web. And like with that, we can now move on to yeah. solving harder problems that are need to be solved with like an engineering brain. So it's a lot like Copilot, right? I don't think mm-hmm. Copilot's going to take my job, but it does help me automate a lot of the simple things that I would just have to manually type out. It's just got it. smart enough to do it. Yeah, I totally agree. And if I go even you know further back, it's like when the automobiles came along and you know people were riding around in horse in horse drawn buggies or carriages. <laughs> and I'm sure that there were people out there that, you know, would take care of horses and they all of a sudden lost their job and they certainly weren't happy about mm-hmm. it. But first of all, like I said, you really can't stop, like it or hate it, you can't stop progress. And more significantly, if you look like at our at the industry at large, post that automobile revolution, there were more jobs, not fewer jobs. So, you know, so far so good in that context. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And so kind of shifting this conversation, like towards the perf work that you did at at Wix, because one of the reasons why we invited you on the show was really to kind of understand 
you know, what it took for you to kind of enable organizational change and adoption and all of that good stuff to kind of not only have like good performance across the board, right? Like the, the, the stats are kind of astounding. We'll, we'll get into that in a second, but to also just have an organization that cares and that is mindful and that is designing with performance in mind, that is like monitoring performance, right? Like, like perf is like, it's one of those things where like you can do a bunch of things to make things go faster once, but then if you don't come back to it again until six months later, like don't be surprised at like not like either like completely reverting or even going the other way. Right. So there is some infrastructure and cultural awareness and monitoring and all of that stuff that needs to be in place in order to kind of like keep those numbers the same or like progressively getting higher or lower. Right. Like there needs to. So can you tell us a little bit about like maybe why performance matters and you know why it's actually so challenging? Yeah, exactly. Everything that you said is absolutely correct. I like to say that with performance, if you're not progressing, you're regressing. You're you hardly ever stay at the same place. Mm-hmm. If the software that you're working on is dead and nobody's releasing anything that maybe then maybe you stay where you are, but uh, hopefully that's not the situation where we're at. So we're constantly enhancing our software offerings, adding features, adding capabilities, making our software heavier usually because you know we sit around, you know for some reason developers insist on writing code all day and that code gets deployed. <laughs> and uh, that's more stuff that you've got to download, parse, run, just work. So software tends to get heavier. Now, if you're running stuff on the back end or on your desktop, software that you installed or as a mobile app maybe, then you might not care so much because that deployment process is just this one-time tax that you pay. That's not the case with the web. You know, you pay this tax almost every time you launch the software where it needs to get downloaded into the browser and executed. So yeah, we've created an environment in which the performance in which or the time that it takes for the software to be downloaded, effectively installed and activated directly impacts the user's experience and very significantly so. Like, you know, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. And if your first impression is that your visitor is just waiting around staring at a spinner or even worse, just staring at a blank page, then obviously that's not something that you want. And it's really unfortunate because very often I see organizations adding features and capabilities which are intended to improve that user experience but end up harming the user experience because of that extra time that it takes to launch the software for the software to become interactive and responsive to to the user's input. Now, when I joined Wix seven, what is it, almost eight years ago, People weren't really thinking about performance that much. In that context, at least my boss, the VP of R&D at Wix, was ahead of his time, I guess, that he felt that performance, web performance was something that we really needed to invest into. But if I look at the past two years, then there's been a really big shift in our industry. I think that across the board these days, people recognize the importance and the priority that needs to be associated with our web performance. We've got... Google to thank to a great extent for that. Another thing that I like to say, as you can see, I like to say a lot of things. I'm a talker. Another thing that I like to say is that as an industry, we are really lucky that the financial benefit of Google's financial benefit kind of aligns with what is good for the web industry at large. Not always, not all the time. We can't always count on it. 
But in a lot of uh, situations, that's the case. Because they're like the biggest ad company in the world, most of their ads are on the web. So the more people are on the web, more money that Google makes. So they want the web-based experience to be good so that people will be more on the web. And like I said, that's kind of lucky for us. So they push techniques and technologies that they consider to be beneficial for the web, and very often they are. If I give, can give an example that has nothing to do, at least directly, with performance, it's uh, privacy and security. I bet you all remember that not so long ago, most websites use HTTP, not HTTPS. Mm -hmm. If you weren't at a store, everything would be HTTP, and only when you got to the checkout part, you would redirect it to PayPal or something, and only that part was actually HTTPS. And Google basically came along and said, no, that's not a good thing. Everything should be secure and private because nobody should be able to see what you're shopping for. And they kind of forced us all to transition from HTTP to HTTPS. Now, how did they go about it? They basically, they like have two prods or even whips that they can use to kind of push the industry along. One is the search engine. Mm -hmm. They don't even need to do it. It's enough that they say it, but sometimes they actually do it. They can say, hey, something X is going to be a ranking factor. And all of a sudden, everybody thinks that this is really important and worth investing in. So they basically said, hey, look, we're going to make the use of HTTPS be a ranking factor. And if you use HTTP instead of HTTPS, you might actually get penalized for it in terms of your rank. And the other thing that they did, their other prod, is Chrome where you know they control the most uh, popular web browser and they can change the user interface in that browser to reflect certain choices that sites make so i don't i don't know if you recall that for a while if your website used http instead of https the address bar would actually have a red reddish kind of background mm -hmm. you know this is bad this is dangerous you don't want to go there not secure and yeah and you know you saw how quickly Everybody transitioned from HTTP to HTTPS. And they basically decided to try to do the same thing, more or less, for performance. Only for performance, it turns out, it turned out that it was you know, more difficult because with HTTP or HTTPS, it's very easy to see whether a website uses HTTP or HTTPS. You know, it's either one or the other. But how do you determine whether a website is performant or not? And that's the reason that they came up with Core Web Vitals. Now, we won't go into that because that certainly deserves an episode all on, on its own. But once they introduced Core Web Vitals and once they said, here are tools that you can use to measure these metrics for your website. And you should know that in a couple of months, we will start using these metrics as a ranking factor. That kind of pushed the entire industry to improve those metrics which usually led to some sort of a performance or user experience improvement. Not always, but often. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by our friends at Raygun. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, get actionable real-time insights into the quality and the performance of your web and mobile apps. 
Raygun delivers modern tooling for customer-centric teams, error monitoring and crash reporting, ship better quality software faster, get code-level insights into the health of your application in real time, and start fixing the errors impacting your end-user's experience. You get real user monitoring, quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues impacting real users in real time, understand exactly how your application performed for every user session and page load. And of course, application performance monitoring gain unrivaled visibility into server-side performance, unlock detailed code-level insights into the root cause of performance issues so you can take action and deliver lightning-fast digital experiences. The next step is to head to raygun.com and start your free 14-day trial, no credit card required. Join thousands of customer-centric software teams who use Raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com. All right, Dan. Wow, that was like a very insightful kind of backstory into connecting the dots with like Google's perf. So I think we've had um, Paul Bacchus on the show before mm -hmm. uh, at Google Looking Week, and we, you know, I kind of brought up this exact topic with him then, which is like, hey, Paul, perf is like thankfully really aligned. Well, not even perf, just perf, open web, like all these in business incentives that Google has are actually really well aligned with just good things for the web. Like Google's pushing perf, Google's pushing more people using the open web versus like walled gardens, right? All really, really good things. So they're like, thankfully aligned. Mostly. <laughs> mostly, 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 right. Let's not forget that we, we need to be vigilant. You know, the, op the open web is more than Google. You know, it's Google world, we are just living in it. But at the end of the day, the open web is bigger and more important than Google. Right. Agreed. But I think, you know, you draw like a very interesting correlation here with like the lever that Google is able to pull for organizations. And I'm curious now, like, how did that lever kind of play for Wix? And specifically, like, how were you able to kind of use those levers or similar levels to kind of levers to drive performance thinking, adoption, kind of awareness, all that stuff? How did you drive all that within your org? So I just wanted to mention one more thing before I delve into that, and that's the fact that what Google has done is a good thing, but it has some consequences that are not always ideal. So some people are looking now at performance only from the perspective of its impact on SEO, and they're forgetting that the much more significant impact of performance is actually on the visitor experience. Because at the end of the day, if you get a visitor into your website, but then they bounce because performance just sucks, then you've not really achieved anything. So it behooves us to remember that the primary purpose of having good performance is good user experience, is making your site available and accessible to all potential users, and that having better SEO is just a side benefit, right. as it were. In the context of Wix, there was an understanding at Wix that if we don't provide or I'm saying we, but if Wix doesn't provide, I'm no longer there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, I, I forgot to make fun of your legal disclaimer earlier. I, <laughs> I was 
<laughs> is this a good time to make fun of Dan on air? Of like, you know what? It's, I'll do it later. Feel free. But I, I'll do it now. Haha, ha, that was really funny. I really enjoyed <laughs> that uh, disclaimer that like, I am not a robot. I am a real human. I have like... I'm not a cat. I have my own opinions that are like, you know, that can, you know, maybe be shaped by work, but they like can exist outside of work. You know, I am a human. See me for my whole self. You know, we need like a... Uh, a shared disclaimer like around that you know so actually again i, I kind of digress but i think that in a lot of ways <laughs> the situation in this in, in this regard is much better than it ever was i mean mm-hmm. well we can thank twitter for that yeah we're on twitter we we yeah. tweet whatever we feel like mm-hmm. and i remember times when you could get fired for stuff like that and and those things don't happen really anymore so so mm-hmm. yeah yeah Leverage, leverage. I think leverage is leverage in Twitter, you know? Exactly. Yeah. But anyways, back to Perf. Back to Perf. Back to Perf. So in the case of Wix, it was interesting because what Wix understood was that if they won't be able to provide good performance or sufficiently good performance for people Mm -hmm. building websites on their platform, they would lose these people. If you build a website on Wix... And then because you've heard that uh, performance is really important, so uh, you went and you ran one of the per- uh, performance tools, which, you know, they're in abundance these days. You've got PageSpeed Insights, you've got Lighthouse built into DevTools, you've got the excellent web page test. There are so many tools out there that you can use to measure performance, GT metrics, etc. And if you measured performance and your score came out poor, then you would say, you know, I'll just drop this platform and go to somewhere else. So from the Wix perspective, it wasn't just about, uh, you know, doing all the right things in terms of getting the best results on on the web, but it also was about being able to retain its customers. That definitely increased the importance of performance at Wix. Like I said, certain people at Wix had the, the foresight about the importance even way back in 2014, 15. But this whole thing really kicked into overdrive about two or three years ago. Again, very much thanks to these things that Google started to do. And one of the things that we understood when that happened at Wix was that we were going to have to make a significant shift in how we handled performance. Because one of the things that I that we did, and I actually see in a lot of organizations, it's kind of like a common mistake, is that when you want to improve performance in your software and your in your R&D organization, you bring in a performance expert or you assign somebody to be to work on performance, and you basically expect that person to solve your problems for you. So the assumption is we're going to create a performance team, a performance core team, a performance expert, whatever. Have a performance sprint. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's, you know. Maybe have this, a performance sprint like once in a blue moon Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we'll fix everything and everybody else can just, you know, continue to do what they do. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't work because when you've got, I don't know, tens of people, maybe hundreds of people churning out code, new code all the time, and they have no awareness about performance and, and you know, they don't take it into consideration, then the likelihood that one, two, three people will be able to clean up after all of these developers is obviously, you know, it's not going to fly. So one of the things that we realized that at Wix was that at the time 
was that if we want to make a significant progress in terms of performance, and we definitely need, needed to make such a, a, a progress back at the, at the time, it's going to have to be something that's done across the entire organization. And in order to do that, what you're going to have to get is management buy-in. Because we as developers really love to think about grassroots movements. We can do things bottom-up. But the reality is that when you're trying to make something like a sea change within the organization, there has to be buy-in from management. Because improving performance does not come for free. This is not uh, something that you, know, you can do on the side. There are going to be associated costs with it. It's going to require effort to improve performance, and it's going to require ongoing effort to preserve performance. And it's going to come at the expense of other things. There are no free lunches. If you're going to invest more effort in creating performance software, that effort needs to come from somewhere. I remember once a long time ago, I was speaking with some product person who will re remain unnamed, and they said something like that. They said, I asked them why performance was not part of their product specification. And they said something like, first of all, we don't know how to specify performance, and that's definitely a big problem. And the other thing that they said was, well, but don't the developers write the most performant code that they can anyway? <laughs> and I literally burst out laughing because when you're under the gun to develop some sort of a feature or capability, you know, you will get it out the door. Even if you have to write ugly code, even if you have to write non-performant code, especially if performance is not a part of your specification and it's never checked or tested. Isn't there a saying like, get it, like don't do performance first. It's like, get it working, then make it elegant, then make it fast or something like that. It's like, let's say you, you assign somebody to build a form. Let's say they do it manually, like, I don't know, in React manually. Mm -hmm. And would you assume that they got the tab order correct if it's not part of the specification? Things don't automatically happen just because they should. Right. I mean, I'm hearing a few different things from you. And also, Nick, I think that was a great analogy. One is like performance is something that's should be kind of like a baseline horizontal, right? In the same way that we think of user experience, performance like is a core part of user experience. And it's also a part of accessibility to a degree as well, because mm -hmm. if your sites are taking forever or they're super bloated or whatever, like, um, you know, depending on where they're being served in the universe, right? Like that's bandwidth and cost and right. It's, it just, it doesn't create an inclusive kind of access gate for it people universally on the web. So there's, there's something to be conscious of. Like when we're designing for like desktop hardwire devices, not only are we doing most users in the West, like an injustice also by like pushing them away from the open web and into like native apps where they have like a more kind of predictable guaranteed experience. Exactly. So there's kind of a few things here and I, I totally agree with you on that. I do think like there's an education gap with our product, like with our non-technical stakeholders, as well as business, like commercial folks at large, like there needs to kind of, like, I feel like we haven't widely acknowledged perf as something that's kind of core to good user experience and also like impactful business metrics, like in the same way that like SEO, like I feel like business people really understand like SEO is important. Good SEO helps drive like traffic, but I feel like we're not like that same kind of thinking isn't there for perf and i'm not i'm like not sure 
like what the gap is, I, you know, it's shifting. Yes, I think that it's shifting. You know, first of all, I owe my job at Wix. I owed my job at Wix to that, and now I owe my job at Next Insurance to that, to the understanding that uh, you need to invest in in performance, and that if your performance is poor, then your business metrics or KPIs will suffer. By the mm-hmm. way, there's this awesome web.dev site that the Google people, the Chrome people maintain, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of case studies about organizations that uh, improved their the performance of their websites or web applications mm-hmm. and have reaped business benefits as a result. And, and I think oh, that yeah. in that context, it's much easier today than it ever was. Kind of similar to accessibility. I mean, with accessibility, it goes even beyond because there's, it's, there's also legal ramifications, which currently at least don't exist for performance. But you're absolutely correct that good performance is also an accessibility thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I wish kind of we kind of like broadened the definition of accessible in the sense that like a lot of people think like, oh, well, is this just targeting like users that are like maybe have a physical impairment or, you know, like people don't realize like if I'm holding a baby in one arm, you know, I I now have to navigate. I have to use my phone with one arm or I have to use a keyboard with one arm. And like, you know, we are all like every single person on this earth like is like meets the spectrum on some level at some point in their day or time or whatever. Right. Like it's, it's something that affects everyone. I'll give a concrete example. Say that you're uh, overseas, you're at the airport, you want to catch your flight back home, you're on uh, uh, some sort of data plan which really limits your uh, bandwidth or maybe also your network speed, Um, and you want to try to make it into the airline website to see what's going on with your flight, but they decide that they want that airline website has five megabyte background image of uh, <laughs> some plane taking off that you literally care nothing about, but you actually need to download, and that eats up your entire roaming data plan, or it just doesn't load at all, and you can't check on your flight. These things happen. So to get back to what happened at Wix, the, the great thing that happened was that we got the best kind of, uh, of management buy-in that we could, which was literally the CEO standing up in an all-hands meeting for the entire company <laughs> and telling everybody that performance is going to be mm-hmm. our top priority. You can't get any better buy-in than that. You know, we had the performance team at Wix, but all of a sudden, like instantly, there was a switch in what we did. Instead of actually doing this kind of, of cleanup and catch-up after the teams, we had the various teams basically knocking on our doors, telling us, we want to improve the performance of our of our part of the product, our features, our capabilities, whatever. Please teach us how to do that. And also, please provide us with tools that will enable us to verify that, to measure where we are now, to measure where you know we are, let's say, in six months, and to see that we actually achieved some sort of progress. Which brings me to one of the most important points that if you want to push forward performance within your organization, another thing that you're going to have in addition to buy-in from management are tooling to enable the organization to actually measure performance, both as it currently is and you know as it progresses, and also education, how to teach people about what performance actually means and the diff- various aspects that have to do with performance. Yeah, no, that, that that makes perfect sense. I mean, if we're kind of 
break that down a little bit further, it means like if a developer has a pull request that they're trying to send over the wire, right? Like having some type of baseline SLA and or metrics kind of tracking in that pull request that like lets them know, hey, you're introducing a regression or you're not, right? So that's one. But also on the product side, what that means is, you know, product managers and designers and, you know, folks that are kind of shaping some of the feature requirements, right, should be thinking around what are our performance SLAs, right? Like giving some guidance for an understanding, like what's our baseline today? How are we going to either maintain that baseline or like improve it, right? So so I think that there's there's thinking there. And, you know, for me, like one of the issues with this whole thing is like, we have a culture and hygiene generally around like just hurry, hurry, get it done, right? So Nick kind of talked about that, like three stages of like, get it done, ship. I don't know. What was it, Nick? Like something, make it elegant later. Yeah, I was forgetting it, but but make it fast is the last one. <laughs> yeah, right. Make it right. And like, usually like what happens is you ship it and then like all of a sudden it's in the wild and we're starting to already build features on it on top of this thing that was like not even hardened or perfected, right? So this culture of like needing to go slower and like work more elegantly, like that's like the aspirational goal. But the problem is like, really like, realistically, most people just are like that thing needed to be done yesterday. And like, you know, between the education gaps, the lack of tooling and the lack of enforcement, like I think it's like, it's, it is hard for teams to do this, even if they want to. And so how do we abstract that? Like, what do we need to do as a community to push that further so that like, we're just, we're building perf into tooling and and like having more turnkey ways of like right enabling this process like yeah so i would like to mention two things first of all in the context of of introducing core web vitals google also specified ranges for the various metrics so they basically mm-hmm. told our, the industry these are the metrics that you should be looking at and these are the values or the ranges of in terms of performance that you should be aiming for or shooting for. Mm -hmm. And that made it a whole lot easier for product people because they can use these specifications that that have become a kind of an industry standard. So that's Mm -hmm. one really good thing that has happened. Again, though, you need to educate your organization about that. Now, fortunately, there's a lot of information about that already available. There are a lot of excellent talks uh, you can find on YouTube from uh, uh, the Chrome Developer Summit, for example. I've spoken about it multiple times, so you can find my talks on YouTube or podcasts or whatever. And a lot of other people have as well. So this information is out there. So that's item number one. What I would also like to mention is something called a performance budget. So one of the ways in which you can enforce proper behavior is by automating it. So kind of similar to the way that you have end-to-end tests or even unit tests to ensure that as part of your CI-CD process that because you're in a rush to release a new feature, you're not breaking some existing feature in the process because otherwise you would. So even though you're pressured to release this new feature or capability, if you break a test, well, guess what? You can't release. And what performance budgets do are is that they enable you to do the exact same thing with performance. So basically, you decide that you're going to be measuring a certain metric. Let's take a simple one. The amount of JavaScript that you download down to the browser. Controversial topic, by the way. Because <laughs> we love JavaScript. We love it. We love it so yeah, much. Yeah, it's a JavaScript podcast. Yeah, 
used sparingly is best. <laughs> not, not just sparingly. Not as sparingly you know. as it used to be. Uh, I hope that somebody like uh, Alex Russell doesn't kill me for saying this, but uh, browsers have become much better at handling larger amounts of JavaScript. So I'm not saying, mm. you know, go wild and start shipping Gigabytes of JavaScript. <laughs> gigabytes. Gigabytes, a new, a new metric. I love this. Yeah. <laughs> Giga, gigabytes. <laughs> but browsers are much better at handling larger JavaScript payloads than they, than they used to right. be. So again, the platform is kind of protecting us from ourselves, you might say, or saving us from ourselves. Well, they've had to, in all fairness. Like, they've had to. Yeah, for sure. Like, I think, like, V8, <laughs> actually, like, for example, the V8 engine, which powers Chrome... Uh, Node by default. Edge. Edge now, right? So any kind of chromium flavor, right? So it, it, it um, op- did a bunch of optimizations around stuff that, and for React. Yeah. No, not, no, actually not specifically for React. I'll give an example of one just uh, optimization. They actually do stream parsing. So the JavaScript is actually parsed as it downloads. It used to be the case that you had to download the entire JavaScript resource mm-hmm. and only then would it get parsed. Now it actually is parsed while it downloads and it's parsed off of the main thread. Mm-hmm. So it's not even taking up uh, the CPU cycles from the main thread for just for the parsing operation. So some things at least are getting better, but that doesn't change the fact that if you make your website dependent on a whole bunch of JavaScript, you're going to pay a price for it. Mm-hmm. What you can do in the context of your build process is literally measure the amount of JavaScript that you've generated. And if the amount of JavaScript that you've generated exceeds a certain threshold, again, you break the build. And now, I normally wouldn't recommend to like use the exact, like measure how much JavaScript you're downloading now and set that as your threshold. <laughs> but I don't know, give yourself a little bit of breathing room, like 10%. But mm-hmm. then when you hit that threshold and the build breaks, you need to make a decision. You can say you have the option of A, I'm not going to ship that version until we are able to get the total size of the, our JavaScript down. Or alternative, you can say, look, I'm going to increase the threshold, but I understand that there are consequences to what I'm doing. It's not something that just happens and I'm not aware of it. At least I'm aware that I'm increasing the payload and that there will be a price to pay. Yeah. Would you delineate between um, a single page app, for example, where it's a lot of JavaScript? In that regard, would you maybe just have a threshold on chunk sizes then and maybe trying to keep those individual chunks at some specific threshold? Yeah, it, it gets complicated really quickly. Looking just at the total JavaScript size is a really blunt tool. Mm-hmm. As you said, we can go into all sorts of uh, code splitting strategies and how to deliver the code effectively over time, especially in single-page applications. It can get complicated, but one of the advantages of, of the blunt tools or the blunt metrics is that they're easy to understand. And again, you can make informed decisions or you can do all sorts of optimizations. Another, by the way, thing that you can do, another uh, sort of uh, performance budget might be your Lighthouse score. <laughs> so you can, uh, you can do sort of like an end-to-end test, measure the Lighthouse score for that, and then if your Lighthouse score degrades beyond a certain threshold, then again, you would break the build. Now... Here, just two things to watch out for. Uh, Lighthouse can, you know, scores can kind of jitter or 
have certain variants. So I would like run it, I don't know, five times and then take the median or something like that. But the other thing is though, that suppose your lighthouse score did degrade and it broke the build, it's not always easy to figure out why. I'm laughing because as you were talking, I ran Lighthouse on a site that I'm familiar with, and I got the message that this page loaded too slowly to finish within the time limit, <laughs> so the results are incomplete. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's not so good. <laughs> no. That's hilarious. This episode is brought to you by SignalWire. SignalWire offers APIs, SDKs, and edge networks around the world for building the realest real-time video and video communication apps with less than 50 milliseconds of latency. They use WebSockets to deliver 300% lower latency than APIs built on REST, making it ideal for apps where every millisecond and responsiveness makes a difference, like apps that need instant natural language understanding, real-time machine vision, or large-scale video and audio conferencing. Here's what makes them different. They use MCU, multi-point control unit that mixes all video and all audio feeds on the server side and then distributes a single unified stream back to every participant. That way, every participant in the apps you ship experience the same video and the same audio. Your apps have none of the awkward audio effects, obvious lag, and jumpy video. It's all smooth, great UX, creating a more lifelike virtual experience without compromising audio or the video quality. Head to signalwire.com slash video, mention GS Party to receive an extra 5,000 video minutes. Just go to signalwire.com slash video, and remember, mention GS Party to get those extra 5,000 video minutes. So in the last section, Dan, you spoke about having the right tooling in place to define performance baselines and metrics that you can measure so that you can tackle them and then also stay within specific thresholds. If you're just getting started, maybe you ran Lighthouse and saw that your score was abysmal, <laughs> then like, what would you do to get started with that? Okay, so we need to kind of put tools into two categories here. So one category of tools are tools, we can call them lab tools. Those are tools that you run in your own environment as part of the development process or maybe as part of the release process. And it's called the lab test because you're running it, the test in a control environment. So you're basically, let's say you're, you're it's kind of similar to an end-to-end -end test, like I mentioned before. And the benefit there is that, uh, that these tests are usually easy to replicate. So for example, if, if you see a, a bad score in the test as part of your uh, um, CI-CD process, you can generally replicate that problem in your development environment. The developer can just do it on their own computer and usually be able to achieve similar results. Now, the good thing about these tools, these lab tools, is that they also usually provide a wealth of information. So if you're looking these days at a tool like Lighthouse, for example, its online version, uh, PageSpeed Insights, by the way, this Lighthouse is like the engine that Google uses to measure performance across all their performance-related services. So you actually have the Lighthouse engine built into PageSpeed Insights. You have the Lighthouse engine 
built into DevTools. You can have the Lighthouse engine. They also provide like a version of it that you can integrate uh, as part of your CI/CD process, and it's all open source. So if you're looking at where to find this stuff, you know, just look for Lighthouse or look for Lighthouse Performance Budget or Lighthouse CI/CD, and you will find a lot of tooling that you can easily integrate into your process, either open source tools or alternatively tools that you can actually purchase and then get some you know, support for and, and stuff like that. But going back to how you actually start debugging it, so these tools these days actually provide a lot of information and often actually tie into Chrome DevTools. Now, getting the expertise is not trivial. These tools can be really sophisticated and that's exactly where having a performance core team or a performance specialist or alternatively bringing in a performance consultant can actually pay dividends because you definitely can't expect, uh, let's say, your average uh, uh, web developer to be familiar with all the intricacies of the performance tab in the Chrome DevTools. I don't know how to read a flame chart, to be honest. Maybe we'll do an episode <laughs> about that. Yeah, It's not that bad. But yes, it does require tooling and expertise and experience knowing where to look for stuff. And undoubtedly, the web has become such a sophisticated environment. There are so many moving parts these days that getting the best balance, it can be challenging. And I've seen a lot of people jumping into wrong conclusions. By the way, you remember that old saying that's kind of attributed to... Who did Knuth attribute it to? I forget. That premature optimization is the root of all evil. Mm. Basically, what that means is that you shouldn't start optimizing before you've actually measured, determined that you have a problem, where that problem exists, what actually is the problem, and only then you should start optimizing. Because if you start optimizing based on your intuition, I can guarantee that you'll optimize the wrong thing. Yeah, I Thank you for bringing that up because I think that's something that's very lost on folks. Like performance should be very targeted in terms of your approach. Like you should first measure that something is a problem and then kind of work your way backwards from that measurement, right? So make a change, remeasure, right? So there's a very kind of methodical approach to perf work that it's not just like, oh, we'll just, let's just ship this less JavaScript or let's just do this, right? Get a baseline first. Like that should be your framework. Get a baseline. If you're trying to make a change, get a baseline. Until you have a baseline, you don't even know that you are making improvements towards that baseline, right? So like get a baseline, figure out what you need to do to shift that baseline, then figure out how to continue measuring that shift, right? So there's like kind of, there's multiple aspects to this, but like this rinse and repeat framework, it's you have to be very methodical when doing perf work. It's very different than kind of software engineering that's like painting with a wide brush on a blank canvas everywhere. Like perf work is very much kind of targeted reverse engineering repeated again and again and again and again. And I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen flame wars on the internet somewhere <laughs> about what is more performant for each or a for loop. Oh, and I usually tell people, I wish that that was your performance problem. Right, <laughs> right, right. Oh my God, right? That's so funny. Yeah, these little micro optimizations that people argue over. It's kind of like the nerd brain trap, you know? It's like, no, it's not like using plus plus versus this other, you know, like how you increment a variable or how many variables you have in your code is not the, <laughs> not the real problem. I was around when that actually mattered. 
And these are not those days. Correct. Right, right, right. We have bigger, bigger fish to fry now, right? Exactly. That's so interesting. And actually, you know what, Dan, you know what's interesting about that? It's that, for example, uh, the like the entire kind of like uh, framework for measuring performance, like, right. So we've gone from like these like low level, like worrying about these like low level code uh, optimizations. I feel like that's like legacy baggage from back in the day. It's like some weird, like legacy historical baggage that we have from like programmers that were dealing with like, you know, 20 megabytes of RAM as their like top level constraint or whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> like those are way, way like, they're actually super outdated and you can actually leverage. So I remember like the Facebook team, we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes, but the Facebook team came up with this tool. There's like a pre-optimizer. Right? So I can't even remember what it's called. Nick, do you remember what it's called? It's like this module for like, you can hook into your build pipeline that like optimizes your JavaScript we will link it in the show notes, but essentially it kind of takes, you know how, like when you write code for humans, it's like optimized for human understanding. But, you know, if you really want to get super nerdy about optimal code, like you can write it, but guess what? A human's not going to be able to really read it or digest it in an easy way. Right. So we, we write code to, so that like we can collaborate and contribute to it, but you can actually, if you really want to kind of get those micro optimizations in your code, you can actually like there's there's tools that you can integrate into your build pipeline that will optimize your JavaScript as well. And if you're looking for those micro optimizations, but really most of the time you're looking for the bigger fish, you know? If you're looking for micro optimizations, don't. Well, no, that's a good problem to have in the sense that like it, it means you've exhausted all of your other options. <laughs> Unless you start there. <laughs> and believe me, you haven't. I've seen organizations fight about the, the optimi about optimizations of their JavaScript code and at the same time download a, a, a five megabyte GIF. Right, right. And, you know, what are you guys even doing? Um, and that brings me back to another thing that you want to measure, because we spoke about lab measurements. There are also what is known as field measurements. And field right. measurements are about uh, trying to capture the, ex the actual experience of your users in the field. Mm -hmm. So you want to effectively instrument your website in order to collect performance information report that back into your own databases, as it were, or alternatively into some service that you use, and I'll touch on that in a minute, and then you can actually are able to know what your users are actually experiencing. Because one of the issues with lab tests is that very often we don't really know what our users are experiencing. We create a lab environment based on some sort of assumptions that we're making about what our users are experiencing, what our users have, but that may not be the case. So being able to actually collect real information from the field is invaluable. And by the way, mm -hmm. the way that Google uses performance for search ranking is based on field data. So Chrome browsers actually, you know, when you browse some website and Chrome actually records the performance that you experience. And unless you opt out, it actually reports that those numbers, anonymously, of course, back to the mothership. So Google actually collects performance information about almost everybody who's browsing user using Chrome, and they use that information for uh, the performance factor for their search engine. And the interesting thing is that they actually also expose this information to us. So we can actually go and look 
at the graphs that uh, at the data that Google collects. You can look using uh, the Google Search Console. You can actually look at information about your own website. And there's also this great tool that uh, Rick Viscomi from Google created called uh, the uh, Core Web Vital Technology Report, which allows you to actually graph the performance of various technologies out there. So if you want to compare, let's say, the performance of React sites to view sites, you can. And so that's really, really cool. But I still highly recommend for organizations to actually implement their own ROM collection method into their own website so that they'll have real-time information from all their sites or, or for all their uh, sessions, sorry, at least most of their sessions, that they'll be able to analyze in real time and slice and dice whichever way they want. And fortunately, there are a lot of third-party tools that we, you can actually use for that purpose these days. So, for example, uh, you've got a product like uh, Speedcurve or Akamai M+, or Pingdom, or New Relic, or, or uh, Raygun. Just, you know, search for ROM performance monitoring and you'll end up with this huge list. And what they do is basically they work very, very similarly to a Google Analytics. You embed a small script in your website. They collect the performance information into their hosted uh, database somewhere and give you all the capability to view all sorts of graphs of, of the performance data that they've collected for you. And you definitely want to do that because... For example, you might think that your, the performance of your website on mobile is great because you and all your developers have the latest and greatest iPhones, but it turns out that half your users have Androids. And do you know how much faster an iPhone is compared to an Android? Right. No, I want to hear you guess. <laughs> I, I oh, to guess? I guess it depends on which Android model. Latest iPhone versus latest Android. Oh, latest, like the latest and greatest Pixel? I think it's orders of magnitudes faster, I think. The iPhone would run JavaScript approximately three times faster. The latest iPhone yeah. wow. would run JavaScript three times faster than the latest Android. But here's the thing. Most of your users on Android don't have the latest Android. Mm -hmm. Or they have the latest Android devices, but it's, it's, they are very cheap devices. They went to Target and they purchased a, three, uh, uh, um, I don't know, a $200 phone or a $100 phone. And these things run, like you said, in order of magnitude slower. Mm -hmm. So being able to collect field data that shows you how your users actually experience your website can be crucial in this context because you say, hey, turns out that all our Android users, they're bouncing because their the website is so slow. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So to kind of like kind of frame this and sum up um, this information, we're we definitely need to do some measurements. Definitely need to do some analysis. That analysis should certainly be partially driven by lab data, bot data, CI data, whatever data. However, you need to also understand where your users are coming from, what types of devices they have, and try to kind of actually replicate some of like get some field, quote unquote, field data. It's not quote unquote, it's actual field data. Okay, field data. Oh yeah. I, well, I mean, I'm 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 trying to use the word field in a different way. <laughs> so field. I will not put quotes around it. Okay, start over. So field data. We're gonna capture field data to essentially get like information like latency, hardware, like how that hardware is performing, um, all the kinds of stuff around 
realness and so I'll interrupt you and I apologize for that but the browsers they simultaneously kind of limit the information that you can get but they also these days provide really interesting information so for obvious reasons like for to prevent uh, fingerprinting of sessions uh, browsers do prevent you from getting certain information about what the users exactly have but on the other hand, you now have something called the Web Performance API. And if that's too complicated for you, Google have actually created a small library on top of that that really exposes performance information in a very digestible way. And by the way, mm -hmm. all those third-party tools that I mentioned before that collect field data or RAM data, call it whichever name you want, they actually all use this, <laughs> this Google library on the inside. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because it's <laughs> just a really thin wrapper on top of the, of the Web Performance API that's just basically right, built right, into right. the browser. And so you can actually, for example, you can get the LCP value for a user session. You can get the CLS value for a user session or the FID value or the FCP. So all these values, you can actually get them from the browser. And this is a quote-unquote standard way. It's actually standard compliant. Google are trying to make these metrics an official part of the DOM. And the APIs to get them. And by the way, I didn't mention I'm also an invited expert on the web performance working group for the W3C. So we actually talk about these APIs that Google is introducing. Some browser vendors adopt them. <laughs> Some unfortunately don't, or at least not yet. So for example, Safari have adopted the metric that exposes uh, FCP, the first contentful paint, but they've not agreed to adopt the metric that uh, for the, the API to expose the LCP metric. So you can't actually collect LC, you cannot actually collect LCP from Safari sessions. It is what it is. But you can from Chrome sessions. So at least for some of your sessions, you'll able to get this metric. And now you have the Core Web Vitals. Uh, uh, values, not just from the lab, not just from running Lighthouse on your site, but from actual real user sessions. So you'll know my median or my 75th percentile, and I'm using 75th percentile because that's what Google uses. They look at the 75th percentile. That's the 75th percentile for my users on Android. And then you can know what, what your situation looks like. Yeah, so thanks, Dan. So we, we kind of rumbled through a lot of very specific, detailed information <laughs> and uh, mentioned a lot of acronyms in a shorter period of time without really giving context to folks. So apologies <laughs> if you're like, what is LCP, FCP, TCP, whatever. Yeah, so <laughs> Core Web Vitals is its own really discussion that we hope to get into in the future. We're going to link to some of that information in our show notes so that I think you can kind of dig into like what some of these statistics are. But it's really kind of, to summarize it, it's really just like, how long does stuff take to paint on the DOM? How long is stuff taking to kind of like become interactive, right? So there are kind of various metrics around this. And Google has um, kind of codified around, a, you know, three or four set of core web vitals. I think it's three, three number, I think now. Yeah, there are three metrics. Right. So yeah, do we want to just quickly mention them? We've talked about this briefly in other shows as before. LCP, which like you said, how quickly stuff gets displayed. Mm -hmm. CLS, which is how visually stable the stuff is. You know, you don't want a mm -hmm. website where things jump, Shifting. shift or jump around. And FID or first input delay is how quickly it responds to your first interaction. You got it. So like, right. So let's not have too much jank. Have it not take too long, right? And like input delays as well. So there's kind of those are three kind of areas yeah. that they're circling circulating around. And we're definitely gonna hopefully have a show kind of really dedicated to digging into that in the future. We're kind of hoping to 
get some broad strokes from Dan, which we've already gotten so much like phenomenal information around like organizational adoption and like how to measure, where to measure, what to measure, et cetera. All right. So we've talked about this, like how to measure, what to measure, et cetera. So now can we make like, right, in order to kind of really have the buy-in organizationally around enforcement and like the kind of swaying hearts and minds and right, there's a, a lot of education that needs to happen in order to kind of do all of this within an org, like trying to do this within one team is really kind of challenging without having kind of some advocates without, within the org. So can you shed some kind of insight into how you were able to do that at Wix? So at Wix, like I said, we had a core performance team that we were large enough so we were able to afford that, kind of similar to how some organizations have uh, like a core security team or a core privacy team or accessibility team. Whether or not your can, your own organization can afford it, I, you know, is it's a question. But you definitely do want to have people that, let's say, have uh, have a larger skill set, let's call it, or specialization in that context. So, like I said, improving performance does require resources, and that's part of it. So, one more thing that we that we did at Wix, we also had uh, performance champions in different parts of the organization. So you had that core team, which was a central repository of knowledge and information and, and whatnot. But within the different teams, you also had your own, as it were, representative pushing on performance within that context of that team. Now, obviously, if you're smaller, then you may not need these two levels. One level might be enough. But if it's a large organization, that's something that you definitely want to consider and look at because even with an organizational buy-in, if you have too small a team, they can easily get swamped. So that's one really important thing that we did. I mentioned before, again, if you're a small organization and if you can afford it, you can bring in a consultant. There are some great people out there that can really push performance along. And there, like I said, there's also... Thanks to Google and others, there are, there's a ton of excellent content out there about uh, how to improve performance. People like Tim Cadlick or Tammy Everts or uh, Adi Osmani. Or, there are so many people providing so much excellent information about performance. It really is. I mean, I think it's a, definitely a, a good investment if you're interested in, in kind of digging into this a little more broadly. I think for smaller orgs, the challenge is, you know, you have, you know, one or two engineers that are really doing a lot of, you know, different types of different types of things, right? So I think that's where maybe frameworks come into play where they can help help with abstracting some of that context, right? But this is hard stuff and don't don't beat yourself up for it too much. You know, I think we've kind of scaled the web and we've scaled our surface areas without actually catching up educationally, you know, the cultural yeah, the amount of information that you need to kind of grasp and know these days in order to be a front-end engineer, not even talking about full-stack engineers, I know that mythical beast, the amount yeah. of information that you need to be knowledgeable about, to experience it, it's just overwhelming. That's undoubtedly true. Mm -hmm. It really is. It really is. And so, you know, my advice to folks who are looking to dig in is actually, like, I would say start at the browser level, right? Like, you know, um, in the sense that understand just how browsers work and how networking works, right? That's a really good place to start. A book that I would recommend is High Performance Networking uh, by Ilya uh, Grigorek. He spent time at Google and achieved that name. He colloquially was called 
the internet plumber while he was at Google. Um, he's since moved on uh, to Shopify, but spending a lot of time kind of helping teams at Google optimize their performance and like really kind of doing that performance work at the scale and breadth of at Google, right? It was just fascinating. So uh, a fascinating experience to kind of learn from. So I would highly recommend that book. Start with networking and then, you know, work your way up to flame charts and, you know, all the other stuff. But just know that like this stuff is hard and you shouldn't, don't beat yourself up for not mastering it right away. Right, Nick? That's right. That's right. That's right. It's complicated. And and stick to for each instead of <laughs> four loops. <No. laughs> that too. <laughs> Anyways. All right. Well, so on that note, Dan, this was really a very fire hose informational like show. You, you know, clearly are, yeah, someone that we should be learning more from on a regular mm-hmm. basis. Thank you for all your work. So we'll link to that lovely case study that you wrote for uh, Smashing Magazine for folks who want to get into some of the specifics around what changes happened at Wix. We'll have another show dedicated to kind of core web vitals. And for those who want to follow Dan or learn more about Dan, he's uh, on a podcast called JavaScript Jabber. And what else? Where else can folks connect with on you, Dan? On Twitter, obviously. Dan Shapir on Twitter. Yeah, Shapir with a double P. Yeah. And like Shapir with a double P and like don't, what's the word? Legal disclaimer <laughs> like aside, right? Of course, for all the things, right? Just know that like Dan is not representing like insert company name here. I'm opinionated. Let's put it this way. <laughs> yeah. Insert company name here for loop or something, right? Okay. <laughs> so thank you so much, Dan. And I'm so close to 5,000 followers. So maybe you can push me just ahead of that mark. I don't know. Let's see. Oh, yeah. If you're not following Dan, you should totally be following Dan. <laughs> You've done that once already. Yeah. I've already put a plug out to Dan's Twitter feed before. But yes. So, all right, Dan. It's been a pleasure. Same for me. We, yeah, hope to have you back again in the future. And have a wonderful week, everyone. Thanks so much. Indeed. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye. All right. That is JS Party for this week. Thanks for hanging with us. If this is your first time listening, don't forget to subscribe. You can find all the ways at jsparty.fm or by searching for JS Party in your favorite podcast app. We're in all of them. Special thanks again to Fastly for CDNing for us, to Breakmaster Cylinder for the fresh beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate it. Next up on the pod, Nick and I reunite with our fellow Nebraska JS Conference organizer, Zach Leatherman. Zach recently went full-time on Eleventy while still working at Netlify. We discuss what makes Eleventy special, how he landed an open source maintainer's dream setup, and what it means for the future of the project. So stay tuned. We'll have it ready for you next week.